Hi, this is Jill Harrison, Executive Director of the National Institute on Aging Impact Collaboratory at Brown University. Welcome to the Impact Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speakers and ask them the interesting questions that you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of the companion Grand Rounds content can be found at impactcollaboratory.org. Thanks for joining. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Vince Moore. I'm one of the uh, principal investigators of the Impact Collaboratory uh, NIA-funded grant, which is focusing on identifying, then funding, and supporting, and monitoring the activities of pilot projects that are designed to take ideas that work when researchers do them, to and then embed them into healthcare systems in a pragmatic way to try to get new ideas and new programs so that they're available to improve the quality of lives of people living with dementia and their caregivers. And today we have with us uh, Dr. Scott Halpern, who's a professor at uh, University of Pennsylvania and runs a large program where he is sort of does the epitome of what we're trying to do is runs pragmatic trials. And he just gave a, a a stellar grand rounds focusing on the summary of his history doing pragmatic trials and struggling and grappling with various scientific and application uh, challenges in that process. So Scott, I wonder if you would just sort of give us a, a brief summary of the going from that first trial you did, which cost $158 per case or $258 per case, to the ones you did costing $20 a case. And what are the ideas and great insights you had from that? Yeah, uh, well, thanks, Vince. Uh, yeah, that, the numbers are even more stark. That that first trial, I, I think we estimated, cost more than $1,500 per patient enrolled. And we got about four of them each month uh, into our trial. That was a uh, it was like half my career's worth of work for 140 patients or something. And, uh, you know, it just really struck me that uh, for a lot of the work that trans traditional translational researchers do, where they're trying to bring uh, a new drug or a new physiologic intervention to the marketplace, one really needs to take a, a highly meticulous constrained approach to ensuring homogeneity in the patients enrolled and clear uh, removal of any contaminating factors and, and all of the types of procedures one would put in place when the goal is truly to delineate efficacy of an intervention in a very controlled, highly regulated fashion, but that a lot of the work that we're really interested in doing, which are more behavioral interventions and learning to do things within the context of large health systems, not only doesn't need those things, but is, is much better suited without them. And so now we uh, take approaches to our areas of interest that are intrinsically scalable if they're successful. Uh, we almost don't do anything that can't be immediately directly scaled if we show overall real world benefits. 
And yeah, instead of 1500 bucks a patient, which actually by NIH standards is still not a bad deal, uh, we're now down to, you know, in the, in the 50 buck or so range and getting hundreds, if not thousands of patients enrolled per month. Uh, and, and I didn't even have chance to talk about all the complementary studies in areas outside of serious illness that either, you know, my team or, or my colleagues' teams are doing here at Penn, but in areas like promoting driving safety and uh, technologic approaches to increase remote monitoring in COVID and, and lots of other cases, but having similar economies of scale in their very pragmatic efforts. Great. So one of the points you made in the uh, in your lecture, which I thinking about an awful lot, is these sort of phase three trials, the explanatory trials, the ones that cost so much money where researchers really need to understand, in some sense, what the mechanisms are under that. That then translates out to these more pragmatic things embedded in healthcare systems, which are going to scale. We've had this conversation that it's not just that only in phase three trials, that can you actually begin to understand something about the mechanisms, the issues, about how to actually get to implement and do the implementation work around that, but that you can also try to do that under uh, under pragmatic structures. Can you give us an example of how you've done that in your work? You know, I, I think lots of times uh, real mechanistic insights can be derived through pragmatic trials, and, and oftentimes it's augmented. The, the goal of doing so is augmented by uh, pre-specifying how the effects of the interventions uh, differ in high-fidelity settings versus low-fidelity settings can help understand uh, the likelihood that there's truly a causal relationship and hence uh, yield true insights. Yeah, that's the, the wonder of implementation science, and I'm learning more and more about that as we move on. So in the lecture, you talked a little bit about this concept of accountable justification as a way of getting people to sort of sign off and say why they didn't want to refer someone, for instance, for palliative care or otherwise. So in... What what is the what is the theoretical background of this accountable justification, and is it really because sort of people are just being lazy, or is it they want to avoid being lazy, or they want to be avoid? What what is the action that's that, that's being taken here? It's a great question, and and actually, I think there are so many different aspects for why accountable justification can work, and the and the operating features or the operative features uh, may be different in different contexts. So this may, in fact, be one way in which the, the actual mechanism is not perfectly elucidated, but at the end of the day, if it works, it works. So wh what are the many potential ways in which accountable justification works? So, so just to review, you know, for those who don't use the term all that often, you know, the idea behind accountable justification is you ask people, have they done the thing that you are trying to get them to do. And if they say they've done it, you take them at their word. And if they say they haven't, then you ask them to just explain why. And what we know about accountable justification is that the way in which you ask them to explain why and where that information becomes available goes a long way towards determining how effective the intervention is. So for example, if you give them a list of drop-down uh, menu items to select from as to their reasons for not doing it, 
it's not going to work quite as well as if you force them to enter in a free text box their actual reasons for not doing it. And why might that be? Well, it's too easy to just select from among uh, a menu of options. And if you make the task a little bit harder, then people might say, hmm, maybe I should just do this. It's obviously a, a strong recommendation. The other is that uh, without leading people to think that there are justifiable reasons that you would include in that drop-down menu, uh, that you're maybe making them second-guess whether their reasons are, are actually legitimate. But I think uh, among the most important parts of uh, accountable justification in terms of, of why it really works, particularly as a way to nudge clinicians, is that clinicians don't like to be put in the position where they don't feel like they've got a clear way to justify on rational grounds why they're doing X or not doing Y. And just forcing them to think about it and come up with a good reason and showing them that if they don't have a good reason, it's going to be available for others to see in an electronic health record uh, is itself uh, uh, pretty motivating for an otherwise uh, competitive crew of intellectual people. <laughs> Great response. Um, so I would like to next to ask you about the to comment on the sort of, it's not a duality, but it's a continuum of the nature of sort of these kinds of interventions that we embed in healthcare systems, some can be very complex, which have multiple individuals sort of having to coordinate and you then achieve some goal and then have to improve in some way. And they're like care coordination or care planning or something like that. These are, these are complex kinds of things where you have to sort of train people to behave in a slightly different way and to take things into consideration as distinct from things that are sort of more light touch, more of a nudge, more of just simply altering the decision frame as in a, a, a accountable justification. What, con what context does a, a heavy touch or a high touch work as opposed to a uh, light touch being sufficient in general, do you think? Well, uh, I, I guess I would say two things about that. Uh, one is that uh, it's not always an either-or situation. Um, sometimes, and a lot of the work we're doing, uh, uses light-touch interventions. For example, nudges delivered to clinicians through the electronic health record uh, to motivate high-touch behaviors, uh, such as you know real uh, integrated palliative care, goals of care discussions, things of that nature. So sometimes the, the one gets combined with the other. But certainly, I think there is an important distinction to be drawn between the complexity and resource intensiveness of an intervention and how quickly one ought to progress through the sort of NIH stages of behavior change research. So if you take a, uh, a light touch intervention that we know works in many other settings, like just changing from an opt-in to an opt-out, that's sort of shovel-ready to be tested in a large pragmatic design because if it doesn't work, you find it out quickly and you've really lost very little. You haven't you know, spent a lot of uh, resources thinking about exactly how one generates the perfect intervention before you get to large-scale pragmatic testing. 
On the other hand, if you're coming up with a, a new, highly resource intensive, high touch, human dependent intervention, you better be pretty sure you've got some compelling efficacy data to support it before you go ahead to a phase four, phase five trial uh, in a large scalable setting. Because there, if you're testing the wrong intervention, you've uh, you, you've spent a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of people's bandwidth to get a null result. So I think that's that's really a key difference. And I know I know many people at NIA and elsewhere throughout NIH kind of share that view that the, the nature of the intervention goes a long way towards determining whether it's it's ready to go to pragmatic testing or not. That's great. Great response. Thank you. So last, I was a long time ago, I was on the scientific advisory board for the support trial, which was one of the first large, large trials to look at uh, serious illness care in the hospital setting. And their intervention was essentially trying to give feedback to physicians about the probability of their patients dying within the next six months, and then a nurse advocate to help with other kinds of things. And I'd like you to sort of contrast that idea, which at the time they didn't have the great technology or EMR, et cetera, that we have in these days, with what you're currently planning on this PONDER trial, which I was very interested in hearing about. Yeah, well, uh, so the support trial, which I believe uh, had a budget in the $28 million range by, you know, early 1990s uh, dollars. Uh, So I'm not an economist, so I don't know how much inflation there's been since then, but, but it's a lot of money. That was an entirely negative trial. And I think there are a number of reasons for it. The first, I would say, and, and I'll explain why I think that study was negative as a way of contrasting with what we're uh, hoping to do. You know, that was a trial of information provision at its core. They provided clinicians with information about predicted mortality within six months. They provided clinicians with information about what they knew about the patient's goals and preferences, and then kind of left them to do what they will with that information. There's a classic uh, schematic that was produced back in 2006 or 2007 by the Newfield Council in the UK, which is a you know, public health uh, advisory council that uh, talks about the intervention ladder of behavior change. And, and on the bottom are things that don't work very well, but no one gets too bothered by it. And on the top is things that work really well, but but might lead at least some libertarian folks to uh, have a little uh, agita. And the information provision is unambiguously at the lowest rung of that ladder. Like, sure, <laughs> like, no, who's going to argue with giving clinicians information? But arguably, you find a problem in clinical medicine and the root cause of that problem typically is not lack of information. So information provision is about the weakest possible way to change clinician behavior uh, imaginable. So I think that's one reason why support didn't work. The other reason is that in some ways it was ahead of its time to be able to work. This was done in an era where 
there was very little inpatient palliative care, let alone longitudinal models of care that could help people once they got out of the hospital. So, so in many ways, support failed because it was conducted in an era that didn't have the requisite infrastructure to support success. Like it just couldn't happen because it was a narrow intervention in a complex problem without the underlying infrastructure to support those patients, even if their goals were to be uh, respected. By stark contrast, I think, what we're doing is trying to tap into the heuristics and cognitive biases that pervade clinical decision-making because clinicians are first and foremost humans. And so they have these same heuristics and cognitive biases that all other humans do. And by tapping into those innate cognitive processes, that's a much stronger way of intervening than just providing information. As counterintuitive as this might sound, telling a doc what a patient's prognosis is, is very likely to be less effective than asking the doc to think about the patient's prognosis or forcing them to think about the patient's prognosis. Because, you know, otherwise you're just basically making it too easy. And that's not going to help the doc see the forest for the trees if you just give them information and be like, oh yeah, tell me something I don't know. Like, got it. Yes, patient's very sick. Already noted. Thank you. But if you force a doc to actually take the time to think, like, do I really, if I, if someone really forced me to predict whether this patient would be alive or dead in six months, and, and if I think they're going to be alive, like, what's their quality of life going to look like? What's their functional status going to be? That's a much more cognitively engaging uh, intervention that at least we hypothesize will be much more likely to change behavior. Great. I'm so glad I asked you that question because you actually elucidated very nicely basically 30 years of research and changes in how people are thinking about these interventions. So Dr. Halpern, thank you so very much. It was a tour de force lecture and great response. A wonderful time talking to you. Uh, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. And thanks for the invitation again, Vince. Thank you for listening to today's Impact Laboratory Grand Rounds podcast. Please be on the lookout for our next Grand Rounds and podcast next month.